This is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today, we have Nicole Huseman. Hello, everyone. So great to be here today. Obviously, I work with the Chaos Project. Fantastic to be a part of that. In my day job, I work at Intel and I have a, gosh, dating myself, couple of decades experience in marketing and advocacy. Sean Goggins. Hi, welcome. I'm Sean Goggins. I work on the Chaos Project, helped found it, active in many of its working groups, and I am a professor at the University of Missouri. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. I'm a co-founder of the Chaos Project, lead of the governing board, active in some working groups. Mostly I do the podcast right now. My day job, I'm the director of sales at Viturgia. And on the side, I teach at Brandeis University on open source communities. And I'm also the lead for the community advisory group at IEEE SA Open. Today, we have two representatives from the Drupal community. I'm super excited to talk with them today about who contributes to open source and how do we understand this in the Drupal community. So Tim and Matthew, welcome. Yeah, so I'm Tim Lennon. I'm the CTO of the Drupal Association, where I've been for about six years and in the Drupal community for a little bit more than 15 now. It's kind of hard to believe that it could be that long, but it's a 20-year-old project at this point, which is very cool. In my role as CTO for the association, I sort of lead the engineering team that helps our community to build Drupal. So we build the tools that enable them to do that. And um, over the last several years, we've been really committed to understanding the contribution ecosystem of Drupal, and I'm thrilled to be able to share some of that today. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew Tift. I, too, have been involved with the Drupal community for a while. Since 2010, I've been a Drupal core contributor. I've helped organize multiple Drupal core initiatives, and I like to write and study Drupal and the Drupal community. In my day job, I am a lead engineer at Lullabot, where I tend to spend a lot of time building Drupal websites. It's great to be here. I must say the Drupal community is near and dear to my heart. I was part of it, you know, as I was finishing high school, I built websites on the side. And at the time it was with Drupal 6 as 7 was about to be finished. And so one of my projects, I actually used Drupal 7 as it was being ready because the timeline aligned. And so I helped fix some bugs and contributed some code. And so I always have this, this fond memory of the community because it was really great. And I don't think that is by accident. No, I think we have one of the best communities in the world, to be honest. So that's an awesome story. That's similar to how I started in Drupal, actually. 
while I was in college, where I was not a computer science major or an engineer at all, I was an English and philosophy major, I was building Drupal sites to help pay for school. So, and eventually that led me all the way here to my role at the association. Very cool. Yeah, that's similar for me as well. I have a background in music history, actually. I was a former music history professor at the University of Iowa. I have a PhD in music history. But at some point, I decided that I would rather raise my kids near their grandparents. So my wife and I moved back where I could work anywhere. And being a web developer, specifically a Drupal developer, because of how Drupal works, I did not have a computer science background, but I always tinkered with computers and whatnot. But Drupal was very friendly from the get go. And then from there, I could learn to be a professional developer. So it's been that kind of project for me too, where it's not just been something that's just professional, but it does offer this way to integrate my life and my family. And somehow Drupal actually has the central role, which is part of the reason why I've been interested in the analytics and just understanding the community. Music history. That's pretty cool. So Rolling Stones or Beatles? Actually, my master's thesis was about the Grateful Dead and my... Uh, master's thesis? Yes. Wow. It, that is awesome. It's also a book chapter. My doctoral dissertation was on a very different subject. I wrote about musical responses to HIV AIDS. So good luck wow. putting me in a box. <clears throat> yeah, no, there's no box for you. Grateful Dead and the Not Dead. And now you're on Drupal, also Not Dead. Yes. This is so cool. I'm learning things about Matthew that I didn't know either. It's fantastic. So one of the things that I think Drupal has done really well over the years is to understand its community. The, the community building, I think, is going really intentional, From at least from what I can see. Can you maybe talk about what the community is doing to really be this community that it is today? Let me kick this off and talk about the history a little bit first. So Drupal's sort of motto has always been come for the code, stay for the community. So very early on in Drupal's kind of existence as an open source project, that was pretty central to sort of the philosophy about it. And so that's been something that has motivated the decisions about how we build the initiative leads, the core maintainers for Drupal, how we organized our contribution tools, you know, being a 20 year old project, Drupal is older than GitHub, older than GitLab, all these other tools. So we were building all of the tools to collaborate and contribute to Drupal using Drupal. So we evolved towards a model where we do a very single threaded collaboration on issues. We avoid sort of duplication and forks and multiple versions of the same modules, really encourage people to come together and, and work in a single place. And, you know, that was kind of the organic answer to that question. But then more recently, we've really been looking at deliberate measurement of who is contributing, how they're contributing, and things like that. So when you asked at the top of this podcast, like who contributes to open source, why are we evaluating that question, right? At first, it seems like a totally obvious answer, right? You can look at the Git commits and see who's the author on a commit. But what we've kind of discovered is that really overlooks really key populations that contribute a huge amount to open source. So 
at the risk of ranting here and not letting folks talk for a second or two, I'll, I'll drop in a few things. Like even for myself, right? I've only ever been a pretty mediocre developer, but my role as a project manager has been my area to contribute, you know, even before I was working at the association. And you don't see a PM who helps organize issues in a sprint show up in the Git commit log, typically, unless someone takes the extra time to throw their name in there. You rarely see your accessibility maintainers. You rarely see your user experience experts, your documentation editors, especially, who are not talking about any specific code commit going into the project. So there's all these people who are really significant in making the project happen who aren't easy to measure just by parsing Git history. Similarly, there's all these organizations involved, right? When Drupal started, it was like many of the open source projects 20 years ago, where there's a lot of individual contributors who were feeling plucky and excited. And, you know, we were either in college or high school or whatever, as, as you described, and just getting things done. But those grew into careers for people and businesses for people. And those businesses now give back. So we know in the Drupal community, for example, that like 67% of the contributor time that's spent on Drupal is sponsored by people's employment, which is a really cool piece of data. So I guess we'll get into more of the details, but I want to give Matt a chance to sort of chime in maybe with a little perspective on that as well. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Actually, while you were talking, Tim, it made me realize something I perhaps hadn't thought of before, but the who behind Drupal was very important for me from the beginning. Because back in 2010, that is when I was trying to convince my employer, which was Wisconsin Public Radio, that we should shift from using proprietary cold fusion software to a open source content management system. And when I was looking around, I noticed that at the time, lots of universities, lots of nonprofits, lots of government organizations were using Drupal. And suddenly that was very motivating for me. I wanted to be part of that community and be affiliated with those organizations. And I wanted my organization to do that as well. So I'm realizing that just that understanding of that these organizations are using this, that they're building these things together, that they're public organizations sharing public code, reminding me of the Free Software Foundation Europe right now and their campaign, that same name. This idea in the Drupal community where lots of those organizations are using Drupal for philosophical reasons. So then by measuring the community, we can even get a better sense of like how much of that is just, oh, I think they're using this or it feels like there's a lot of nonprofits, but we can actually start to get some more numbers and not just have a shorter list, but see, oh, wow, this is even bigger than I thought. So when I started, that who was quite important, and we were able to launch that and be part of the public radio part of Drupal, which at the time was quite significant. So there's a lot of things I could say about that, but I just I thought I'd mention that one in particular because the who to me seemed relevant. Oh, and one other point is on my very first DrupalCon in San Francisco in 2010, I do remember how well the Drupal community did in welcoming me. At DrupalCons, the Drupal Association does a fantastic job, and this happens at Drupal Camps as well, but to have code sprints and teach people how to do things, introduce people. And there were all kinds of people doing all kinds of things that were non-code contributions that were significant to the project and helping it grow. So 
So that's how I got in. I'm starting to ramble a little bit. Last point at DrupalCons, there's this one ritual that we do where somebody who's new, like I was at the time, they might be the lucky person to get chosen where Dries Boitart, the project founder, will go up on a stage in front of a whole bunch of other people and say, all right, this person just started today and I'm going to commit their code on stage. So what you both have said, gosh, has really been magical to my ears. Being involved in the OpenStack community a few years ago, it was really important. We were working on reports to reveal who was contributing to OpenStack. And it was important for me at the time to make sure that non-code contributors were recognized. And I've talked since that time on panels and things about how important it is and what makes up a healthy community or who makes up a healthy community and all of the different skill sets that are needed. I mentioned that I really work in marketing and advocacy. And really, that's a passion for me. I do this largely outside my day job, but it's wonderful to hear both of you talk about this. How do you go about both, I guess, putting a pulse on who's contributing from a non-code perspective? And then are there ways that you surface these contributors either through reports or otherwise, could be a whole plethora of different ways. Yeah, there's a few things we do, but maybe let's get into the mechanics a little bit of what we've chosen to do, because I think part of what I'd love to discuss is, you know, our kind of proposal to see if we can get others to adopt a similar model. So starting, I think, in 2016 was when we chose to really deliberately put energy behind this measurement process, again, beyond just parse the Git log kind of situation. And what we did at that time is we added an attribution sort of field set to any user comment on any issue on Drupal.org. And so, you know, we use our issue queues for both our code and non-code contribution. And each comment by any individual user has this default attribution that you set for your profile and you can override if you need to. And it has a couple key pieces of data. So obviously it knows who you are, but it lets you say that this contribution, kind of represented by the comment you made, was either done as a volunteer, was sponsored by your employer, or potentially was sponsored by one or more client organizations. You know, if you're working on client work and they give you the freedom to contribute back what you've built for them, you can credit them for that. If your organization gives you 20% time to contribute, you can credit them there. Or, you know, if they're a Drupal agency or something like that, they maintain a module. We want to know that and get that information. And of course, we want that option to say, hey, no, I just did this as a volunteer. And you can do any combination of those as well, because we certainly, we early on discovered that there are community members who are like, well, gosh, I do get to contribute 20% in my day job, but then I also do this on my weekends and all these things. So any individual comment might have all these axes. And so what you wind up with is in this sort of issue stream, you have all these users who've contributed and this kind of matrix of the different attributions they've made. And the project maintainer, when they accept the work, when they close the issue, they can say, okay, well, these are the users who were really contributing here and mark all of those users and all of those contributing organizations as having participated. So from a purely mechanical point of view, that's how we gather who those contributors are to those different things. And that lets us associate it to the projects, lets us associate it to whatever metadata is related. So if the 
issue was tagged accessibility. We happen to know who was doing things related to accessibility. If it was for documentation, we know that. All those different things. And we do some cool things with those data, but I'll stay with the gathering part for a moment. The other thing is just this week, you know, we decided to add another feature because there's sort of, in my mind, there's kind of two broad categories of contribution activity that people do. So one is literally activity, like individual spurts of work, units of work, and those are well captured by something like issues. But the other category is fulfilling an important role in the community. And that may not be well represented by some issue that you've completed, but it might be you're on our community working group helping mediate disputes between people, or you are a Drupal camp organizer, or you're a Drupal camp sponsor, or you're a contribution mentor who makes yourself available to teach people. So what we've literally just added this week is an ability not related to issues, but just on your user profile to do the same sort of thing. We have a list of our common community roles and you can say, yes, I fulfill this role and fill in the same attribution data to say, actually, my employer pays me to do this, to participate as a community working group member or as a mentor or whatever the case may be. Wouldn't it have been great, Nicole, when you create the report three, four years ago to have had all this data? Yes, yes. And be able to right. I mean, I say marketing, right? But it's all of what Tim talked about. It's organizing these different events. It's writing a blog. It's all of these different things that we do to, to, it's the, so what, who cares? It's the translating the lines of code into, you know, at heart, I'm a storyteller, right? So it's really translating these lines of code into why is that important to our broader world? And to have a tool to represent those kinds of activities in the way that Tim just described is significant, really cool. In fact, I'm, I'm now wondering, wow, how do I get involved in the Drupal community? Yeah, that's fantastic. I know one of the things that has impressed me about Drupal's engagement with Chaos Project so far has been this peer-reviewed, prompted mechanism and set of tools that you have for doing this assignment, that it's a natural part of the workflow on Drupal right now that you give credit to people who contributed different things. and. I like the technology part of it, not because it's going to launch rockets, but because you have designed something that deliberately incorporates all these different types of contribution as your kind of main line for anything to go into the project. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, one of the key considerations, and Matt can speak to some of the conversations that's been happening on the, on the chaos mailing list around this whole subject, but one of the key considerations in the initial design here is right. We want to avoid giving people too much paperwork, right? The goal, especially for volunteer open source contributors is like, we just want them to be able to contribute and we don't want them to be doing things like spam fighting for our community and doing tons of process stuff and doing tons of manual reporting. So we try to have this sort of minimal set to capture what we need. And it remembers the default of what you did last. So, you know, if your situation doesn't change, you said it once and for the next three months, the attributions are appropriate for everything that you've done in that period. So it is really powerful there. But yeah, Matt, maybe you can talk about, there's kind of a catchphrase that we sort of tried to come up with. Catchphrases. Uh, Let's go. Let's hear the catchphrase. What, what we're trying to do, we're, still, we're, we're workshopping it. So maybe y'all can help us. But Matt, why don't you kick that part off? 
I don't remember the catchphrase. It probably wasn't catchy enough. <laughs> I'll see. There we go. You're the one who said it, so I wanted to give you the credit for it. But no, um, building a better picture of how open source gets built and building a better understanding of corporate citizenship and open source were two of our sort of like catchphrases for, you know, if you're asking yourself, well, what's the value of adding this whole extra layer of attribution? You know, this is kind of what we're trying to capture. Yeah, I've been looking into this system for a while. And as part of what we do, we've been analyzing these data. And in 2016, Dries Boitart and I published our first sort of analysis at this. Like Dries and I are not data scientists, but we kind of looked at this and we've sponsored, published this post called Who Sponsors Drupal Development? And Dries has been updating that each year since and adding to it and, and adding more. But what I have found over these past five years is a lot of people are sort of get kind of confused about the system. So I did also want to add like some specific examples. So when let's say Tim is working on his project, he might be working on an issue that is part of the code that goes on Drupal.org. And he might say, I'm Tim, I'm working for the Drupal Association. And then that is credited when an issue is fixed. Whereas I work at a Drupal agency, so I might say, and again, real world example, I might say that I am Matthew Tift. I'm working on this on behalf of my employer, Lullabot, for my client, Georgia Public Broadcasting. And so I might be working on an NPR module or a PBS module, and those, all of those, that information is captured when I add functionality to one of those. But in addition to that, I'm, as you might have guessed, motivated to work on public media. So there are times when I do volunteering. So I might also check the volunteer box. So whereas sometimes people might assume, oh, Matthew works for Lullabot, and then look at the code base and say, whatever Matthew did was Lullabot, I can now for each issue get a better understanding of, oh, this is actually also client work. Oh, and Matthew was volunteering on his own time. And I'm going to do something now, which guests never do. And I'm going to refer specifically to episode 20 of the Chaos Cast, because I've been going back and listening to it and loving Citations. it. Citations. Yes. Yeah. And I remember listening to that, which was about Finos. And they were talking about a rubric that they use where they actually value it in the financial sector when people don't volunteer their time on open source. So people might use these data differently, but in the Drupal community, there are a lot of people like me who will do Drupal during the day and in the evening, and we don't necessarily view that as an unhealthy thing. Maybe in other sectors that might be viewed as unhealthy, or maybe it means that they're you know, working extra hours undesirably or something like that. But I guess it was, the thing that, that that guest had said was just something about how they valued that people got paid to do their work. And that, of course, we have also found to be important in the Drupal community that we can't have just volunteers, but our system that we would love to share with others, I think, does help give you a better sense of the depth of that, of what is going into the project and giving people different ways to interpret that data. And for me, I'm actually just quite curious, like, is there something that's special about Drupal? Because maybe I sound like a Drupal fanboy, but I would love to see data that says, well, actually, you know, all of these, there are these other projects that are doing the same thing and that people are also 
happy in those projects and flourishing. So like this idea of human flourishing for me is fascinating. So I think these metrics may seem strange or weird, but I get kind of excited of the idea of standardizing what we're doing, moving this stuff over to a platform, GitLab or GitHub, and then seeing what other projects do with it. See what Sean and his team at Augur can do with these data. And also, if you've been listening to the Chaos Cast, you know, Sean has uh, Google Summer of Code students that do all kinds of cool things. And I'd love to see what other people can do with these sorts of data. All true. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, I think there's a lot of interesting things that you can do with that, so I'll say. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. And that's where you can see that like the pitch we're making here is that we'd love to see some variation of what we've been using standardized you know, to a certain degree across open source. And it's part of the reason why we want to work with the folks here at Chaos, why we want to see if you know there's IEEE folks that, who, who would be interested in this, and why we want to work with tooling providers like GitLab or GitHub or any of those folks to see if they can enable that, right? Their tools aren't currently set up to allow you to add on this extra metadata. So the reason we were able to build it is because we had built our own tools in the first place. But, you know, we want to move to, in, in our case, to GitLab for the Drupal community. And we actually sort of have halfway done it already. All the code and merge requests are there, but we've kept our issues because there's a few things like this where we do these attributions that we can't do on another tool yet until... They help us build those features in. I'd like to make a really short digression before I go back to the other things we can do with this data as part of making the pitch. But the, that digression. Digress, go. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> this digression is related to both what Matthew said about the value of understanding who gets paid to do the work and about what Nicole said earlier about the different roles and sort of historically unnoticed roles in open source. So the digression is this, and this is something that Dries talked about in one of his keynotes, which is that the ability to contribute to open source as a purely volunteer individual contributor is a privilege. It is a, gosh, you must have a great paying job that doesn't work you too many hours. You don't have to worry too much about your childcare. You got time evenings and weekends or whatever to do this stuff, to actually contribute back. But when we know that there is a increasing level of maturity, when people are getting paid to contribute, we know that those contribution opportunities become accessible to more people. So, right, all this, you know, accessibility and diversity, equity, inclusion, like there's populations of people who, you know, women who often even today still are on the hook for childcare more so than their male counterparts, black and brown folks all over the world who maybe are underpaid and therefore have to do more kinds of work or side jobs, all these things. They're not well represented in open source today. If, you know, you look at GitHub's reports on that, things are getting better. But the more that there's a, a sense of a mature ecosystem, a sense that people should be rewarded for their work, can be recognized like the better we can broaden that community base. So that's my quick rant and quick digression because I think it's really important. Also, those non-code contribution roles are often held by people who aren't the typical cis white males <laughs> that are out there in the world who are usually getting the commit credits because they wrote the code. But, you know, there's a lot of folks, a lot of women, a lot of folks on different parts of the gender spectrum and things like that who are often not necessarily doing the code. Many of them do but who are also contributing in the project management space or the advocacy area, as you described, Nicole, all these things, right? And I don't want to pigeonhole people, but like, it's pretty telling that the things we don't measure happen to be the ones that are done by people who 
you know, aren't the white males who seem to get recognized for everything else. So that's my digression and rant about the other sort of social value of looking at this stuff and looking at these incentives. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. I think talking next about what we can do with the data when we capture it really well can also add fuel to maybe get more momentum to implementing it. And I'm also going to drop into the show notes, the link to the GitLab issue where you propose to, hey, let's add this feature to GitLab, make it accessible and available to everyone who is on the GitLab platform. Awesome. That sounds great. Yeah, and let me talk first from cool data that we got. I've got a tab open here with the report that you know Matthew pioneered with Dries, the, the 2020 edition at the moment. So there's the kind of data that you can get from what most projects already have. So for example, we know that from July 2019 to July 2020, there was an average of 85 issues fixed per day in Drupal and about 4,200 projects worked on. So that's core plus modules and themes and things like that out of a total of 35,000 or so that are actually hosted within the Drupal ecosystem. But roughly that many were sort of active in that year. You could do that without this extra data. We can tell what, you know, how many people worked on modules versus themes versus core. You can do that. We can also tell how many individuals are contributing. That's relatively easy to do. Although again, that was probably missing if you parsed Git logs, whole categories of people. So again, in that 2019 to 2020 period, there were about 8,303 8, <laughs> unique individuals who are part of those that con contribution ecosystem. And again, that's not just the coders. But then the new data we can get is there were 1,216 sponsoring organizations that were paying for somebody's time of those 8,300 people to do some of this contribution. And we know who they are. We know how much they've contributed and to what areas of the project they've contributed. So if, we know where they live. Yes. No. Okay. <laughs> we actually do. I mean, not their street address, but if they filled their user profile to say, hey, I'm in, you know, Portland, Oregon, we got that data too. So what do we do with that? And how do we use it responsibly? Because there's some like landmines here. And Matthew, feel free to jump in if I go off the rails here. But, you know, a big landmine is, you don't want to rank, stack rank individual contributors, really, right? You do want to know who some of your great contribution cohorts are. And you, it's great to recognize them as groups and say, hey, you know, maybe these are the top 50 contributors, not in a rank order, but in like you know, just alphabetical, something like that, so that you can recognize them. But, you know, it gets really tricky when you put people in a, in a place of saying, gosh, well, you should pick my opinion because I'm the third most uh, you know, active contributor to a project or something like that over someone else. But on the other hand, you might want to stack rank the organizations who contribute. So the, this gets into the whole conversation about what incentives can you create with this data and how can you use those incentives for sustainability of your open source project? 
So at the Drupal Association, we're doing several things with this data. We operate a marketplace. So service providers out there in the ecosystem who provide Drupal services can list themselves on Drupal.org. You know, Lullabot, where Matthew works, is one of those service providers. There are many others. There are hosting companies, all these sorts of things. And of course, where you are listed in that marketplace is really valuable, right? It's just like your Google page rank, except specifically within our little Drupal space. And we stack that by your contributions. So if your organization sponsors a lot of people's time, you get to come up right on top of the list. You get more business and leads. You're rewarded for sponsoring your developers to work on the project. And that encourages you to do it more. And it encourages organizations who are on page three, four, or five to say, gosh, how do we get up there? I guess what we need to do is contribute more. So that's the experiment we've been trying. And, and it's been successful so far. It's had its rough edges for sure. But we're going from sort of passively accepting that a whole ecosystem has grown to trying to curate it with good incentives around good citizenship in the project. I would add to that Sean's comment about, do we know where they live? Like, it sounds creepy, right? Like, do we know? Yeah, it really does. I would like to add a little context to that because in the Drupal issue queue, I think the Drupal community has done something fabulous to sort of encourage positive conversations. And one of the things that we do is that each individual user can say where anytime their username appears, they can have their pronouns. You know, so it's on mine, it says M Tift, he, him. It also has my primary language, English, and it says where I'm from, Minnesota, USA. So if I am conversing with somebody in the Drupal issue queue, and I see that English isn't their primary language, and they write something, and I, you know, it might give me a better sense of why they might have written words in a certain way. These are kinds of things that people can volunteer. Lots of people don't have any of those fields filled out. Nobody has to. But by offering that as a useful tool, we can combine that with some of this issue credit data to come up with some metrics that are meaningful. And when Dries and I first were working on this post, I remember I tried to do all kinds of things to see what data do we have? What can I cross-reference? What could I do that seems really interesting? My fabulous data. There's so much here. And you know, I come from a, a history, my music history degree. I, I read a lot of critical theory and I, my advisor was constantly telling me, if you're not talking about gender, race, and class, then what's the point? So I was looking into, you know, what sort of data do we have that could tell us a deeper picture of this community that has been so beneficial to me? And I honestly found it really hard. I opened up an issue in the Drupal diversity inclusion group just to say, like, do we have some target metrics that we should shoot for? Now, I know now that the chaos community has a lot more sophistication there, but you know, five years ago, I was thinking about this thinking, well, wh what does it matter? Are we, are we trying to like get our numbers to be at some magical other number and then people will be happy? I mean, I don't think that's our goal, but I do think that there is something there. There are themes that we can find. And to get back to a little bit what, what Tim was talking about is in the marketplace is that we've tried other ways to do this. And just a few quick little examples to provide some context. So for a while, there used to be this website called Certified to Rock, which rated Drupal.org users on a 0 to 11 scale. Now, 
people in Lullabot used to put on our job applications, like if you have a certified rock score of X number or higher, then we want you to apply. But it was kind of this unknown thing. And it did seem to have this kind of idea like, oh boy, that person must really contribute. They have a seven or something, or that person's a one. So who cares about them? But that ultimately, that site is no longer for one reason or the other. But that was one thing that I would say the community sort of tried. We've also tried things like simply, there's this Git repo called Drupal cores that ranked the contributors to the Drupal project. And that also kind of had pros and cons because it was really only looking at code and a lot of organizations might do that. So what we have settled on now gives us a better sense so we can populate that marketplace page. And I've been working on a blog post about this. I probably should post it at some point about leaderboards in the Drupal community. But I was looking back at that marketplace page where at one point it was just a list of like eight people. And then for a while, then they shifted to an alphabetical list and then it became businesses. And then it became, you know, businesses that were listed in a like alphabetically. And for, I think it was something like nine years, there was one company that was at the top of the leaderboard because of their alphabetical ranking. So you kind of think like, well, that seems fair, but for so long, people that might've been looking for a Drupal agency might've just got, you know, contacted the organizations that were higher up in the alphabet. So there's all kinds of interesting implications for this. Overall though, I feel like that there are good things about it. And I do also want to mention that there are negative things that I've encountered there. I've seen comments and issue cues when we have changed that algorithm where some people who had worked really hard to say, get their organization up, dropped from like, say, page two to page six. And it might just seem like, well, ah, that's kind of a bummer, but maybe our algorithm is better now, you know? But when I saw some of these and they were friends of mine, people that were mentors to me, people that had been buying me pizza at a local Drupal user group for years and and introduced me to Drupal. And suddenly they're like, I'm feeling disheartened because of these data. To me, that gave it a really different view. Like this leaderboard isn't just something that is, you know, that is just a list. It's not just a technical fix. This is like somebody felt bad because of this and nobody in the community wants to do that. Nobody in our community wants people to feel bad. So we're trying to tweak this. We're trying to work on our algorithms, our marketplace page as a committee that could probably talk about that studying this and all kinds of other things. But yes, we do have various lists that we use with this, but I would, you know, be very hesitant to recommend just throwing up lists without knowing. And I learned something else from the chaos community, starting with what will we do with this information? What action will we take? You guys have a great acronym and I can't remember what it is, but. One of the things that, that I'm sitting here and wondering is, one is how is that algorithm right now? What factors into that ranking? And two, how is that determined? Is there like a community process? You already hinted at that. Maybe you can talk about that. But then the third question that ties into this is, how is the issue tracker being used to do all of the work so that it is a good representation of people contributing, especially for non-code contributions? 
So maybe we can start there. How is that issue tracker being used and how is that collaboration shaping up there? Yeah, that's a great question. And those are, I mean, frankly, those are all good questions. I think for us, we had a precedent for the Drupal.org issue queues being used for code and non-code Drupal sort of organizing even prior to developing this system. So folks were used to, we had things that were called policy or plan issues that were not supposed to be code related necessarily, you know, stuff for documentation. And it's like kind of any other bug tracker, but it was a little bit less code centric. I won't say that's necessarily perfect though, because we had people when we first introduced the system, it was the only way to attribute this kind of credit was in that issue queue. And that resulted in people finding workarounds for some of the examples I referred to before. Like, so now we might have people who open a project on Drupal.org that isn't a module, it isn't theme. It's, this is the Drupal Camp Florida organizing project. And so they might open that project and all the issues underneath it are the organizing committee met today to select sessions or those kinds of things. So people have been using it in that way. But it isn't necessarily the best tool for the job, which is why we introduced this alternate option I mentioned earlier, where rather than using issues, you can say, oh, I just have this role. I am a camp organizer or I am a, because there are just some roles where it's not going to fit in that issue model. So we are trying to expand to, to capture that. And there are a few other non-issue related pieces of data that we capture, and they're not necessarily related to individuals. Some of them are just for organizations. So for example, we factor into the algorithm for marketplace ranking, how many case studies an organization has published on Drupal.org, and we can change the weight based on which version of Drupal. So, you know, Drupal 10 is not too far away. And if we want to say, hey, we really want a, a media blitz of good stories to tell about Drupal 10 clients and people who've done the migration and upgrade, we might increase the, the bounty, the, the ranking bonus of submitting Drupal 10 case studies, for example. We also give credit to people who do direct financial support of the Drupal Association. So we have a supporting partner program that has various tiers, and you can get a certain amount of credit for doing that. But we're careful to say, hey, you can't just buy your way out. There's other programs that we have people do. So we might say we need a minimum of regular contribution, and then you can supplement with your you know, financial contributions. And even we've experimented with a few other things. We give companies credit for the number of their staff who are individual members. So you know, we've had some companies say, hey, if we had some reason to do so, we'd buy our whole staff individual memberships to the Drupal Association. So those are other like little bits and pieces but to manage that is the trick and to assign relative value is the trick. So we have our contribution recognition committee, which has access to what the true weights are. We don't publish the exact numbers of those variables because gaming the system is something you have to look out for and manage and review periodically. But that committee, together with the association staff, looks and says, okay, how much should that Drupal 10 case study count versus the Drupal 9 case study? How much should this count versus that, this count versus that? Or is there some automation we should do? So, you know, on the issues are all parts of projects. And what we can do is weight them based on how much that project is used. So Drupal core issues go to core. Every Drupal site uses Drupal core. So those get the most weight. If you, you know, if you think of it on a one to 10 scale, all the contributions to Drupal core are definitely going to be tens. A small module that not many people use, maybe you only get sort of one credit for, the, for a contribution to that module. So lots of things like that. And it's definitely something that you need active curation and active attention to. So 
And I think what you describe as active curation really strikes me as community review of how to measure the contributions of every kind of contributor. And by having that review, I think you maintain some openness in the credit giving that is not there when I only count commits or when I have to come up with some sort of jerry-rigged system for measuring a particular issue in different ways. This seems like it really involves someone in making a decision at the time a contribution is finalized for the most part. And I think that's super helpful. I would also just add that in some ways, I find this part one of the less interesting aspects of of these data. And I think other developers that I have talked to do as well, that a lot of them really are not, they don't want to just be on the top of some leaderboard. They often want to feel like they're doing something, like they're helping someone. And I I do know that for organizations though, like my employer, I was really surprised when you know, I told them about this blog post that I had written with Dries years ago, and and they talked about how the leadership team like spent a bunch of time reviewing that and trying to understand what's coming up and trying to understand the risks and rewards of the community and how much we should contribute to Drupal. So I understand that there are significant sort of business concerns that people have to make. Am I going to devote my life to this? That kind of thing. And that people do use those data in that way. And I think for me, there is still the sense that you can use these data in in different kinds of ways. And one of them is to sort of rank people. And I think in another way, one of the more interesting views is to kind of understand the diversity of the community, to try and understand what sort of initiatives are important to organizations, what initiatives are important to, say, volunteers. And you can get on this different level where you're not just saying, oh, this company really contributes a lot. I mean, okay, they contribute a lot. But I think there's this something that's more fascinating to me about this is to say something like, well, the, like for now, Dries, you know, he's really encouraging this sort of push back to making Drupal friendlier to people who are not code contribution, non-computer scientists, non-programmers, and to kind of see how this push back to maybe making Drupal more friendly to maybe sort of less technically, I don't even, I can't, it's not going to be less technically complex, but it might be easier to use in certain ways. And I, I have to use my language carefully here because I know uh, that there's an initiative around this. And the, the, the idea though, is to you know make it more accessible to less technical people. So I'm curious to see what this sort of push in a way, it's sort of pushing against predominant web development techniques now, which where everything is so complicated and this and external dependencies, that and blah, blah, blah. But this idea that can we make it easy for someone to use? Like, how is that going to change the dynamics of the community? That's something that's an interesting question to me. Yeah, Matty, I want to follow up and give a big plus one to that conversation about, right, this the fact that we can use these outputs to do an incentive structure for our marketplace is only just one thing and, and is perhaps not the most interesting thing we can do. Like you said, being able to know, okay, of the organizations that contribute, which modules do they care about? Because that tells us which modules are getting used in client work. And that tells us you know, what probably the most important key features of Drupal are and maybe tells us who we would go to if there's an initiative in a related technology area to make a 
a key improvement to Drupal, right? It tells us who's got that domain expertise. So yeah, there, there's lots of other variations that are perhaps more useful. And I should mention that, you know, I, I said earlier, we're willing to rank organizations in a way that we're not with individuals. So the other thing we do is we take all of this, all these different kinds of data that are part of our credit recognition system, and we build them into people's user profiles, just as almost a resume kind of display that says, here's the community roles you hold, here's the projects where you've received credits, all these sorts of things, so that people can make their own decision who are looking at that user page about, gosh, what's important, what's cool about that, all those things. Yeah, I probably showed my privilege a little bit there as a person with a job and a stable job and an employer that's that pays me to contribute to Drupal, where I say maybe that's not that important. It's also very important to people that might want to come into the community, make a reputation for themselves and show that they're contributing. So, yeah, I probably should amend that slightly to say that this is like, as Tim mentioned, this could be very important for individuals as well who are trying to make a career of this, for example. Totally see that. You mentioned earlier diversity of the community, and it's something that I am really have been passionate about over the course of my career, diversity, equity, inclusion. And I wonder, it sounds like you, you obviously track that. And, and I mentioned, you know, involved in the OpenStack community, we were doing that kind of work. And honestly, it's been difficult to show progress, as you guys pointed out. It's been difficult to show significant progress because it is something that is a long, you know, it's yeah. a lengthier objective, right? It's a lengthier uh, a goal. Work. <laughs> right, right, right. It's not easy. It's going to take many years. It's a lengthy thing. But do you report out on the diversity of the Drupal community? Have you seen upticks or, you know, uh, changes or um, yeah. that kind of thing? It's a great question. This is an area where we still have a lot of work to do. As you said, I think everybody does. We've tried some things that I think are not perfectly successful yet. I want to give a shout out to the Drupal Diversity and Inclusion Community Group. They're a self-organized group. It wasn't like it was a sanction top down from anybody. It was like they decided to set out to do this and try and make improvements. And uh, they're responsible for a lot of the great things that have been going on. But what we did also actually around that same 2015, 2016 timeframe is we started adding a whole optional set of fields for self-identification. And we based them on sort of the big eight or big 10 categories, which is a phrase that you can look up. And so those are things like I, I identify as, with differences in physical ability, mental ability, race, ethnicity, just the whole gamut of different kinds of things in fairly broad categories. And there's a few things we've seen from that. One is we've still only got maybe 20% of the community who has actually opted to fill that out, even though one of the options is to say prefer not to answer or none. So we only have a sample size of the 20% of folks who've chosen to do that. And that has gone up over time, but relatively slowly to hit that level. I would also say that it's less than 10% of our community currently, based on that data, that identifies as being from some underrepresented community. So, and we try and, we mention this in our DrupalCon presentations typically, as we try and give an update on where that is and on some other key initiatives that we might be doing. But there's stuff that we still need to do. And there's problems with 
the data modeling that are hard to resolve. So for example, we do these categories, but what does it mean to self-identify as underrepresented based on your ethnicity? That your answer might be very different if you're in the United States versus if you're in India, for example. If you're ethnically Indian in the United States, you might say, yes, I'm underrepresented. If you're in India, you might say, no, I'm not. And that affects the way our data works. And we also currently, because we put it in categories rather than in specifics, I couldn't give you a specific report that says, you know, how many black folks are in the Drupal community? We don't have that. We only have the broader category. And so there's that balance between what categories to use, how specific do you get, allowing people total discretion and whether to provide this at all, because that's just important for people's feeling of safety. And yeah, still a hard problem. So hopefully the, the communities of open source as a whole come up with some solutions that, that we can help out. I wish we had more time to talk more about this. Unfortunately, the episode length is already running quite long for today, which is totally fine because it was a super interesting conversation. So let's continue this conversation, you know, maybe in the chaos community. Maybe you have some other places you would like to point to where these conversations are happening. And I always like to ask for people who want to follow your work, your progress, where can they find you online? And if I can sneak in one more question, if you have any advice for communities that want to adopt a system like we were discussing today, do you have any resource or any starting points, any advice to give? So Drupal.org has a series of blogs from the association that describe some of what we've done so far. There's also a page that I'll try and add to the show notes that talks about our contribution recognition system. So you can see who the committee members are. If you want to ask them questions, you can just read up on what we've done so far, see animated GIFs of how this attribution model we've described works, all that kind of stuff that you can sort of play with. Also, I'm, I'd be more than happy to talk one-on-one -on -one with anyone. So I'm Hestinet on Drupal.org, Tim at association.drupal.org if anyone wants to reach out. You can talk to me that way as well and follow up. Matt, how do folks reach you? The easiest way to reach me is through my website, which is matthewtift.com. Yeah, I'm happy to talk with folks as well. You could email me at matthew.tift at lullabot.com. And other than that, I'm all over the internet. So people can find me that way. This is awesome. And this brings us to our last segment of the podcast, our value ads, where we talk about something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life. And I'll kick us off. I am currently really enjoying the Nebraska Passport Program, which lists a set of 70 places throughout the state of Nebraska that were chosen. And each year they have a different list of 70 places. And some of them are hole in the wall restaurants that you would never discover in a town really small that you have never heard of. Or there are some beautiful parks that are just gorgeous and you didn't even know was less than half an hour from where you live. And so I really enjoy this Nebraska passport program for the summer. It gets me outside traveling. It's something great to do with the kids as well. And for me, I am really looking forward to this summer. Intel has a great sabbatical program. And so I am going to be off for the months of July and August. And in August, I am taking my 10-year-old son to Massachusetts and Maine and we're starting in Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket and Cape Cod. 
then going up the coast of Maine, landing in Acadia National Park, and then flying back to Portland, Oregon, which is where we live. So I have been just really researching, doing tons of research for our trip. So that's been uh, occupying my time. That is super exciting. I hope you have a lot of fun and a great time off. My pick of the week is a book because I don't have anything quite as exciting as Portland, Maine in my life today. It's the art of science and engineering or the art of doing science and engineering, learning to learn. It's a book by Richard Hamming that I've been reading here these past few weeks. And it has a lot of insights on how to actually run an engineering project as complex as many open source projects. And I think it's a, definitely a worthwhile read for our community. Very cool. Well, I guess I'll go ahead and go next. And so my youngest sibling, my younger brother who lives with me here in Portland, Oregon, his birthday was in May and he was wanting to do some upgrades to his PC. But as I think folks out there know, there's a huge silicon shortage and prices on everything is crazy expensive. So what we actually decided to do was do a case mod, build a custom PC case with this whole theme. And what he came up with was uh, building something that looks like a NASA satellite. So we did this great kind of setup that has externally mounted radiators that look like solar panels, a custom water cooling loop, painted it all in kind of NASA white and put the worm letter NASA decal logo on the side. It's really fun. It's been really cool. Oh, that sounds awesome. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, we'll add a quick thank you so much for having us on. And my pick is some of the discussions I've had about a book that I've been reading. The name of the book is called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. I've been reading this book as part of a book club that I'm part of. The book club is called We Can Do Better. It's a book club for men. And we have had some really interesting discussions. That book has been very eye-popping and quite frankly, just mind-boggling at some of the data and the gender bias and so much of our data. And also just part of what has brought me joy as I'm reading it, like yesterday, I was, we were heading out of town in our car and I was reading the book and I, you know, I just kept talking with my wife and my daughters about things that I never would have talked to before, like menstruation apps or car seat belts and how those fit women or how phone sizes affect women and all of these different things. So it's opened up all kinds of interesting conversations for me. The book, I would say, is imperfect. I have some, I would not say I agree with everything that she's saying, but I would definitely agree that we are living in a world that has some huge biases in our data. So that's probably relevant to a lot of listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim and Matthew, for coming on the show today. It's been wonderful to be here in a great conversation. And I hope all the listeners out there decide to chime in and maybe implement some of this for their own projects. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. And thank you, Nicole and Sean, for coming on today. I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you also, dear listener, for joining us today for this really exciting conversation. I really had fun. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos.community. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.